the canine condition. Come, sit, stay. Welcome to season two of the Canine Condition Podcast. I am your host, Jackie Pignol. Each episode is a conversation with a trustworthy dog rescue organization or animal welfare advocate that will leave you inspired and empowered. This is the why, where, and how to adopt or help a canine family member. The goal is to save homeless dogs and set you up for success with information and resources to raise and keep a healthy and well-balanced dog. Embark on this journey with me, and let's save humans' best friend together. Do your dogs go to school? (laughs) Silly question, right? But what if I told you that your dogs can and do have the potential to be the most obedient, smart, well-balanced beings in your home? What if I told you that you can have clear lines of communication with your dogs without having to say too much? Having a canine companion is having a family member of a different species in our home. And the best way to have a balanced and peaceful life, a joyful and adventurous life with them, is to know how or to learn how to communicate with them. It goes way beyond come, sit, stay. My guest on the podcast today is the indie dog whisperer, Nathan Lowe. Nathan is based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and to better understand how he is helping the canine condition, I want to read you a quote from Nathan. Clear communication is key to any relationship, and we understand this at the human level. But the same applies with we and our dogs. Dogs speak a nonverbal language, and we speak a verbal one, so they assume we know what they're saying nonverbally. Nathan's mission is to improve the relationship between people and their dogs by teaching us humans how to have clear lines of communication with our canines. He helps by being an interpreter and then handing you the tools you need to succeed in your communication with your canines. It is my pleasure to have him as my guest for this conversation. Welcome to the Canine Condition Podcast, Nathan. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Yes, and I'd like to let my listeners know how I know about Nathan, the indie dog whisperer. I was on a guest on a podcast called Kinda Nerdy Girls with KJ as the host. She and her partner who has a show called Pet Pals TV host a podcast, P-A-W-D, which was so cute. And as I got to know them and follow them on Instagram, I saw that they were connected to you and they have had you as a guest. And I was really intrigued and very excited about the information you would often share about dogs and training, since I'm such a fan of that method of getting our dogs to communicate properly with us. So for all my listeners, I'm very excited to have this conversation with Nathan, who's going to, you know, remind us of a few things, teach us new things, and let us know why it's so important for us to have clear lines of communication with our canine companions. So Nathan. Yes, ma'am. Let's start by you telling us. What got you started on this journey? Was it a calling for you or just something you're very passionate about? Yeah, so my father was a huge animal lover. So, and that was irrespective of the type of animal. One of my favorite memories is we got a potbelly pig when I was probably 18. And this thing had a bunch of hair missing, everything. It was, it was frankly, visually not too appealing, but he would go out and stroke it and say, hi, baby, and just love on this pig. Um, so he had a deep, deep love for animals. He was a very quiet man, but that's how he, kind of, he connected with animals, so more so than anybody in our family. And I think that's where I got that initial connection with animals. As far as dogs, honestly, I was a graphic designer for 20 years, and I loved dogs a lot, but I didn't. I had no idea what I was doing with them. So I volunteered, and like everybody else that means well volunteering at a dog shelter, I got frustrated because they were jumping all over me, et cetera. It was a very large facility in South Carolina, and I remember kind of the seminal thing that happened that caused me to realize there was some there was some code they were operating on was I was in a yard with a bunch of dogs, and one just kept jumping on me, kept jumping. I got so frustrated, I grabbed it, kind of put it down on the ground, said, stop. And when I looked up, I had this ring of the rest of the dogs all looking at me with like this reverence. (laughs) And I thought, I wonder what I just did. And the rest of the time, they all listened to me and were showing all this deference. And I hadn't even worked with them at all. And I thought, I just did something really powerful that I'm not sure what. So I started reading and researching into dog behavior after that. And then I started practicing in those yards until 
Basically, I say dogs are my teachers. I studied them for hundreds of hours, would practice their body language until I saw them respond the way they respond to each other. So that's kind of how I got going in it. And that was in about 06. Wow, that's really, really cool. Because then it was something that just sort of came to you out of you living life and then it just pops up. And it's so cool to see and hear that you were so aware and in tune with that moment rather than just moving on and taking it for granted. You know, you really honed in on that. Yes. But you're in Indianapolis now, right? You're in Indiana. Yes, ma'am. I'm in Indianapolis. So how'd you make your journey there? Oh, goodness. That is a long, long convoluted story. And and when I say convoluted, I don't mean like <laughs> dark. I just mean convoluted by way of twi- twist, twists and turns. Indy is actually where I first, um, so I had been doing dog behavior a little bit on the side since that kennel in South Carolina. And by the way, I just want to give a huge thank you to them because they allowed me to work with their dogs just whenever I wanted in the yards. And as I started to gain expertise, they started asking for my help with dogs they were struggling with. But that was kind of the formation of when I knew I had an ability um, and I had learned their language, like cultural immersion. If you get dropped into a foreign country and you learn the language because you have to, you got to go to the market. I was there so much. I, I just studied and learned, what are these guys saying to me being in these yards? I need to know what they're communicating with me. And once I was in and saw it, it I was fluent. I became fluent in their language. So wherever I moved across the United States, I took the language with me. And dogs are everywhere, as we know, and they all speak the same language. So I now spoke canine. I love that. No one's ever described it that way, actually. Nobody has ever (laughs) put it in those terms. And that makes so much sense to me. Yes. So a lot of times, I know I'm taking a little side road here, but a lot of times when I go to do consultations in folks' homes, what will happen is the first conversation, the dog is having the first conversation with me, and I won't even talk. Half the time, I have to communicate with the dogs. The dog's saying, why are you here? I'm the one who has rank here. I'm going to dominance test you. And the people have no idea what I'm doing or that their dog's even saying anything. And then about five minutes later, I say, hi, guys, how are you? I'm Nathan. But the dog and I are on terms now. <laughs> so it's, it's, um, it's tough for people to learn nonverbal language. You don't have to use cues with the dog. I'm not saying it's wrong to, but it's not, it's not as effective. So, yeah, you can teach a dog, get back from the door because you give it a treat or pull away. But if you stand in front of the door and take a step at a dog like another dog does, running another dog off, that's super clear to them. And I don't have to say anything. I just got to take a step toward them. If I'm facing them right, they know what I'm saying. It's like, okay, I'm backing off. I'm giving you the space in front of the door. And then they don't bolt out the door. So it's a quieter, it's a quieter um, communication. And it keeps us from stress if we learn it. Oh, yeah. I absolutely, I mean... You know, I have a pack of six dogs. I don't know if you wow, know that. that's awesome. I do, and that's five cool. of them are. <laughs> the last three were foster fails, but I'm happy. They're great. They're a great pack. Oh. Different places. <laughs> uh, four of them from Georgia, from wow. uh, rescues and shelters, and they're pity mixes. And they're very smart, very loving. Mm-hmm. But I also, of course, I don't want like chaos in my home and a lot of. Uh, and we never really have to yell. They. I'm really in tune with that whole nonverbal communication. It's pretty amazing. And as a woman, you know, I've told other friends of mine because, you know, I'm not very tall. I'm a petite girl. And it's kind of empowering, to be honest, to not have to be yelling at your dog or having them pull on you or anything, to just use hand signs and they know what you want from them. Yes, absolutely. And I I have found, too, that... In my work, I find that this is not all, always true. I'm not trying to pigeonhole this, but most women have a really strong nurturing drive. And when they attempt to utilize that toward a dog, a dog often reads that as submission. So then the dog becomes very powerful in the home. And so then what tends to happen is the person goes into two modes. I either, ooh, goo, boo, boo, baby, and I hate you then in the next moment. But there's no stable middle ground where I have a respect relationship with you and we know what the rank system is here and we abide by it and are happy and peaceful. It's like it's an emotionally driven relationship. And I, I tell my clients, dogs, and I, I know people disagree with me on this, but I found this to be the case. Dogs do not bond emotionally. They bond socially. That's why you can rehome a dog. They don't have emotional trauma. Like your rescues live with you. They're perfectly happy. They had homes before you. They have birth parents. They don't miss them. They, they keep adapting socially to the next thing. So 
the assumption of like emotional range in a dog is what causes people to baby a dog, which is what causes dogs to gain power in the home. Then they don't want to let other people in or they're interfering in things and not listening. And they say, he won't listen to me. Well, he doesn't view you as in charge. Your, your, your demeanor of softness looks like submission. It's confusing for the dog. And that happens all the time. So just from learning through the podcast, through my documentary series journey, I feel like I now know we're the ones who put that emotional yes. journey on that. Yes, like we we're do. We're the ones who think, oh, this poor baby. Exactly. He must miss blah, blah, blah right. so much. That's right. And they're not thinking that. They're just here and now, right? Exactly. So what they do, what I tell people is, I, I can't tell you how many times, Jacqueline, that I... My clients that have a rescue that call me um, and I come in their home and they say for the first two weeks everything was fine and then all of a sudden, well that's about the time it takes for you to show enough submission to your dog for them to establish a rank in the home of leadership over you and possession over you. So what happens is I have been just driven to try to put kind of contravening measures in place before the dog goes home. like. Can I help you day one so that this doesn't happen so you can keep this dog? Because what happens is if that dog gets too powerful and it's a really dominant dog, then they have a rescue dog they have to keep in a back room and they have company and the dog scratch on the door. Their life becomes stressful. The dog's life becomes stressful. It's not fun for anybody involved and sometimes they give the dog back. We don't want that. We want, peop we want people to be able to say, what are the tools I can bring home with this dog for clear communication between me and the dog to say, hey, bud, this is my rank in here, this is yours, and the dog will say, cool, they have no problem with that. You just gotta be clear about it. They may challenge you, but you gotta know what to do, but most dogs will not challenge you in a novel situation. And every new home is a novel situation. So you have an opportunity at that point. Right. And I can understand, you know, and, you know, my listeners and a lot of my friends and family, you know, you get this dog or a puppy and you're like, but I don't want to just let it go and, and right. you know, to either a board and train program or you're so excited and you just want to cuddle with it and watch TV. Right. But you realize that if you commit to training those first few weeks, whether the trainer comes to you or you go to the trainer, it's homework, it's work. And everyone's like, oh, you know, but. If, if anyone and everyone listening to this could just trust me from experience is that each time I brought a new dog home, although of course I didn't want to part with them, I did feel it was necessary for them to be professionally trained because I had multiples, because I have a young son and my life is busy. There's a lot of in and out in the home. And I seriously set myself up for success with dog training because after those two, three weeks that you just, you know, do the homework, give up. The consistency of that homework is a lot less work, and our lives are peaceful. We have no, we can take them everywhere. We take the pack of six anywhere and everywhere awesome. we want to. That that is awesome. And I, I yeah. And I found too that board and train and board and trains. I know people use those as a good success, but I often have clients that hire me after board and trains that ended up being ineffective because dogs are scent based, right? So they claim the home. Sometimes if you remove them from the home, they don't claim anything where they end up going. So they don't react the same. So the training is quote unquote a lot easier because there's nothing they're possessive of in a, in a novel environment. When they come back home, now stuff, here's mine. So now I'm gonna act different with being possessive at home. You see what I'm saying? So that's why I teach in home. Yes, and you know, now that you say that, because I had that experience with my first one, you know, she came home and she was beautifully trained. She listened to her trainer 100%. And we would go for the follow-ups because it was then part of the program for him to teach us what he taught her so we could practice at home. Four months she challenged us yeah. <laughs> at home. That's right. Because she thought, why do I have to listen to you here? Right. But as soon as we went over there. That's right. She listened, and I'm like, what? Yes. So now that you say that, it makes total sense. <laughs> yes, it, it really is not about them learning commands. It's about them learning who is in charge in the space. Dogs are about who is running the space. So there, when your dog went there, that, that guy ran that space, and your dog knew that guy's scent ran that scented area. So dogs memorize scents of things. So your scent represents a rank, yours personally with your dogs. And if your scent acts submissive in a household, they will take over the household and possess your scent as well. 
So it becomes a hierarchical confusion for humans and dogs. Because you think you're loving your dog, the dog thinks you're being submissive, dog becomes possessive and starts controlling the home environment. And that's why they don't listen when they're barking, they don't stop barking, they, all that comes from that. I gotcha. So yeah, because some of the most common, and let's talk about some of the most common complaints, you know, people adopt the dog, whether older or younger, whether they rescue it or they purchase the dog, the dog is a dog. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> That's true. They bark. Yeah. They're going to bark at the door when the doorbell rings. They're, mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, the young ones like to jump up and yes. put their paws on you and they're being loving. How can we help people understand that it's very easy to fix those things. Pulling on leash is another one I hear a lot. Yes. You know, grabbing the food off the yes. table, things like that. Yes, that's right. Would you say that's those are the easy things we can fix if we get our dog trained? Those things are only easy to fix. So here's here's the honest truth about this in, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients that I've had. It is only as easy as the person's commitment to change. If the person is not committed to change, it won't be easy. In fact, it won't work. Because most of the time, it has nothing really to do with the dog. The dog is just responding out of what it believes to be true from what it sees, the way people are acting, okay? If you change your behavior, the dog will respond and change its in, in turn to what you're doing. So when I, like, I'll, I'll give you for instance, like I had, I had a client here in Indianapolis, they had two corgis, and I worked with them. Every week I was going, normally I don't do that. Normally it only takes two appointments and I'm done. People have all the tools they need, they're done. And they have the whole kit. So that's what makes me kind of novel in this area too, is because I can give you a whole tool bag in about um, two and a half hours, broken into two sessions, and that's it, and you're done. So um, now it's up to you then to follow up. You have to do it yourself. You have the tools, are you gonna use them? So anyway, with, this, with these corgis, I told them you have to take them out of the bed. They were not listening, they were barking, they were going crazy in the house. They did, started seeing great improvement, and one day I went back, and the dogs were like back to zero. And I said, what happened? They weren't listening. They weren't listening to them. And, I, and then I, it occurred to me. I said, did you let them back in the bed? And she said, well, we did this week. And just like that, they took the leadership back over the dogs. Took it all back, all back again. Because that laying in a bed on top of your scent is one of, is one of the clearest signals you can send to a dog of that they have leadership in your household. That's why I never let a dog sleep in my bed ever. Because I don't want to confuse the issue. I'm not punishing them. I'm not doing. I'm just saying, hey, I know you'll be confused if I let you do this, and then you may decide not to listen to me on some things. And you have to listen to me. So I can't confuse you by saying, here's a leadership, here's a throne for you, and they're saying, well, then I must be a king. No, you're not. You're not. So is that why you and I notice you have um, a card that you give your clients mm-hmm. for a consultation card? I do. And one of the things is um, no elevated spaces mm-hmm. when you're present. Yes. Does that being on the bed come into play? Oh, absolutely. So elevated elevated places include couch. Yep, couch, bed. And when I, I say when present, because if your scent is not in the room or not in the home, them elevating is not a sign of any kind of authority or assertion to anyone. They're just there. There's You're not there to assert to. What I say is when your scent enters the room, they need to give up high ground immediately. Because for dogs, high ground is authority. That's what I've been working with dogs. They're doing good, doing good. And all of a sudden run up on the top of the couch, all the way on the back of the couch and look at me and start barking. Because from up there, they feel they have more to say from a high place. So that's why I just don't let them up there. Just to avoid confusion, keep it super clear who I am, who they are in the relationship. Gotcha. Which is that social norm you're talking about and, exactly. and then bonding socially and not emotionally, right? Yes. And so we it's do. It's all making sense, people. You got to listen to this. <laughs> now, now, before you, and, and before people, you know, want to tar and feather me about this emotional thing, I love dogs emotionally or I couldn't do my job. I love them to death, have loved them for of years. Course. But I am under no delusion that this is coming back in the same way. And so I love them enough to set things up for them so they're clear and peaceful. So sometimes just like with kids, loving, um, I know parents, I'm not a parent yet, hopefully one day, but parents tell me, well, yeah, and I do have to make decisions for my child that is not sentimental for me, but is good for, I know I have to do this for their sake. It's the same with dogs. I tell people, be careful. You're not loving yourself using your dog. If you really love your dog, you will make sacrifices of your own sentimentality or warmth for their sake, for peace and clarity for them when it's not so fun for you. That's really loving something. 
in my estimation. So let me ask you this. Would an example of that or could an example of that be crating the dog when you're crate training or potty training using a crate? Because a lot of people that I meet in this movement of me trying to help get more dogs adopted and find homes, a lot of the rescues suggest crate training, especially in a new space. And Many, many people who adopt do not want to crate train. They think they're punishing. They feel bad. They just want to coddle. And so the crate goes out the window. Yeah. So I would make a distinction there between coddling a dog emotionally and in so doing communicating submission to the animal. I am not a fan of crates. I do understand people need to use them. I'm a fan of creating spaces that are gated off inside the house where the dog... Kenneling causes a little bit of psychological shutdown for a dog, and I don't like doing that to them, but it's not, it's not, I don't consider it cruel unless you leave them in there for eight hours. I mean, I've had clients that I've told, I can't work with your dog if you're leaving your dog in the crate all day. It messes with them so much. But I recommend, like, when you're potty training or whatever, I don't let puppies off lead for the first two to four weeks. Like they're with me or tied near me in the house. Everywhere I go, they're tied near me and I monitor, they need to feel monitored. Their mama monitors them all the time in the wild. Can- Canis lupus, wolves, mama's always watching. So if, if a pup goes out of sight, she's going to get up and walk around the corner like, excuse me, you don't just walk out of sight. You stay where I can walk and they'll run back. <laughs> okay. So you should never let <laughs> okay. a puppy like here, go smell the house. That is the worst thing you can do for a puppy. I see. Right. So it's probably why rescue say crate train, because I've seen, you know, crate train guides, and it does say 30 minutes to one hour, but every 30 minutes to one hour, you're taking that doggy out, like you're engaging, they're on leash. So that's that potty training using a crate, but... It is, but I don't concur with that for, for... I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong, so please don't misunderstand me. It is totally fine what methods people use. It's another approach, but... The reason I don't like that for puppies is because puppies are always with when they're little. They're never alone. And and crating isolates them, which messes with their development, in my opinion. So I don't want them ever to feel isolated. Like, even if you have to crate a puppy at night to sleep, put them in your room, though. Don't put them alone. Don't cover the crate. Let them see you. Don't, don't put them where they feel they're apart from people. That's what I never, never do with a puppy. So um, during the day, it is much better to use a 10-foot leash and tie it around your couch leg so they can get to you if need be, but they can't go anywhere either. You see what I'm saying? And it's up to you to monitor. That's your job when they're little. Just stick them in a cage means you don't have to worry about it, but they need to feel monitored by you and interacted with. That makes sense. It's like a baby. I mean, we might put our babies in a little, you know, crib, or a, but it's always near you. I right. mean, my son, That's before right. he was a year old, I mean, you always have those eyes on them because you got to know they're breathing and yeah, they're oh, not right. and all kinds of things. <laughs> yes, exactly right. I mean, people need to understand if you are going to get a puppy, it is going to be a massive amount of work if you are going to do it right. And it's, but thankfully, it's not that long of a commitment because they grow quickly. By about 10 months old, I'd say by by about six months, if you've put in the time, they're good. They're good to go. They're going to listen to you. They're not going to act up. But those first, when you get them at, you know, three months old, it's three months. You're going to be have solid work and just commit to it. If you can't, don't get a puppy. I love that. All that information is so helpful, you know, and even myself who has, you know, so many dogs, we forget because mine are older now. I'm out of the puppy phase, but a lot of my friends have kids and they want to get puppies and they ask me sometimes for advice, but I want to be able to say, here, listen to this episode or go here or go there because I certainly don't have all the answers, but um, I see some things that work and some that don't, but you're right. If if you're just going to stick a dog in a crate, please don't get a crate. I am not a fan of just leaving a dog there all day while you're at work and all, right. all that is just a whole other conversation. Really hard that on them. I don't yeah. like. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's like, you know, that's why we don't like shelters and we don't like to see dogs in shelters because they're just sitting there and not being taken into account or not socializing with us. And like you said, they're social pack animals. And speaking of of shelters, I know that you do a lot of volunteer for shelter dogs and you have this wonderful message about how to find one and bond with one that you can adopt because a lot of people are hesitant to step into a shelter or go there. Talk to us a little bit about when people are looking for a specific type of dog, what your advice is in terms of you're not 
it's not about the breed or the look, but more about the temperament. That's right. So the way I describe it to people is that you know before I was, I have a wonderful, wonderful girlfriend now. But before that, and when I was trying dating services. I went out with a few people from the dating app, and I knew that I didn't have any interest in continuing. But that didn't mean that person was unmarriageable just because it wasn't a fit for me, right? So there's this idea people have that rescues are just a general category, and if I can't take a rescue and make it work, something's wrong with me. No, it has to be a fit for you and your family and your season in life and your temperament and everything else. So it's not like just any dog fits anybody. I think that helps dispense some of the guilt people feel if they do take on a rescue and the rescue bites their kid or does this and they think, I don't want to give up on him. I don't want. There's a lesson to be learned that even if you have to put the dog, you have to basically surrender the dog, you need to learn the lesson that we should have fostered to adopt with this dog. We should have seen, is this dog a fit for our family? Does this work? Because in the end, Jacqueline and I also tell clients this. We have to look out for us before them. So my family and my kids come first. So if the dog, the dog does not come first, my family. So if my family is afraid of the dog, if they're, then we need a different fit. But also, it's a it's a warning to me to say you need to do more research and be more careful before you take an animal into the home based on cosmetics. It's pretty. It seems this. It seems that. And and even foisting human characteristics on it like oh it looks like it this no sometimes when people say oh it's so happy it's actually a dominant dog tail stiff it's not aggressive but it's super dominant and that's the one that'll knock your kids over and not attacking but just wreaking havoc in a home people say well he just wants to play i said no he's playing in a dominant way though and that's the problem so if it's a younger dog, if it's a, you may need to put it with another dog. Say this dog needs a home with another dog that he can play with. That's the other thing is that if you're not set up for a high energy dog from a shelter, and you, there's a lot of them in there, don't just make more issues for the dog because the dog will start to adapt socially in your environment and then get ripped out of there and stuck back. And even though they're not going to sit and like think these people don't love me, it's still there is a stress involved in having to keep and having to continually adapt to new social situations just like us they don't know they don't know any of the sense there they don't know so that can happen but what you say about breed it absolutely is not related to breed in fact we know and i'm sure you know that medically speaking the healthiest um, animals are mutts i mean they're the ones that don't tend to have the genetic issues and don't they don't have the hip issues they don't have because they're not, like they say, all full breds are inbreds, right? So there's, I don't criticize people for getting them. They're, I love all dogs, but there is something about getting just a mutt that fits your family that you fostered to adopt and said, what a great fit. That is just a satisfying story all around for the whole family and is a, is a great experience for the dog and a, a stable place for them to live. Absolutely. And, you know, I also encourage if people don't want to go to a shelter and adopt, then go to a foster-based rescue organization. Yes. Because then, like Nathan is saying, the dog's already in a foster home, so you're going to be asked a lot of questions to kind of find that match, kind of like that dating match. Yes. That's a really good way to put it, by the way, Nathan. I, I love that analogy. And then they have now room, if you adopt from them, to go to the shelter and pull a dog. And so you're kind of saving two lives at once, really. So I do love the fact that, that you're saying it's, it's, it's good to look for our match or to trust others who are experienced in this to help us find a match. And the other thing I wanted to ask you is that you help avoid that surrender point. So when that's why is that why you're saying if you get a dog, go and get the training first because that's going to set you up then yes. for success, right? Absolutely. But I I would say the only word I would change is don't like don't go and get the training. Have the training come to you. So you do not want to put a dog in the walls of your home and let it begin claiming your home and all the people in it. So if it's okay, I'll give you another story that brought this in a clear relief for me. And so a man um, and his family called me. He was, uh, and I think he was an investor of some kind, and built a home in a rural area that was really beautiful, bought a bunch of property. They had adopted a little pit mix that was so aggressive that the vet said, not only can I not work with this dog anymore, but I think you need to consider putting the dog down because this dog is out of control 
and dangerous. So I was the last call, basically. They said, we're going to try you. And then on the advice of our vet, we don't see what, I mean, they didn't know what else to do. So when I got there, that do- what I saw with that dog was that dog had become possessive of every single person in that home. And because it was a dominant dog, it was willing to come and try to attack me for just being in the space. So they had to hold it on a leash. And if I would even move, like go to get up, it would come at me and they would have to yank it back. The whole time I was there, it did it the wow. entire hour and a half. So I said to them, he told me this dog growls. If I walk by the girls' rooms, it'll be laying in their bed and growl at me. That's how possessive it was over his kids, even to him. So this dog had become so powerful from being babied, and his wife was babying it a lot. They all were, but she especially, like, she was a little emotional hearing what they would need to do. But I said, you start guarding your children from that dog, and do not let the dog anywhere near the girls for two weeks. So the dog knows you're claiming your girls. Don't let it near the table when you eat. Keep it back from the door. It was a pretty harsh regimen to try to save that dog's life is basically what it was. And I came back two weeks later and I knocked on the door and I heard one woof and a big pause and then woof. I thought, oh my goodness, that's already different. Opened the door and the dog was sitting all pleasant next to one of them, just looking at me with its mouth open, panting like, hey, how's it going? I walked in there, sat down on the couch. The dog brought a toy over to me. I threw the toy. Come on. No, no, I'm not kidding. And I said, I looked at him and he said, this has been the toughest two weeks of our life. We did exactly what you said and it it was so hard on our family, but it worked. Oh my gosh. The dog had nothing to possess anymore. And because it had nothing to possess, it became docile. It had nothing to say, this is mine, get out of here. And that's the key. When you bring a shelter dog home, you cannot let them begin taking things over. Because when they become possessive, they become possessive. And if it's a dominant dog, they can be dangerous because they are willing to bite to remove people away from what they own in the home, including people. That is amazing. And you know, as you're saying that, I know that when I see the shelter posts, because I'm you know, constantly checking in with my local shelters to see what dogs we can share, a lot of them get returned because it says, too possessive of the owner. Yes, that's right. That's a, a, a huge comment that's always on the kennel cards. Yes. I think of a million things that it could have been. You're always wondering, like, gosh, I wish we could know more. But it's probably something like what you're describing. Absolutely, right? Jacqueline. This, l- let me tell you the pattern that I see. Sh- shelters don't mean to do this, but when they are putting forth an emotion-based narrative, this poor baby is just looking for love and just... What it does is it touches the hearts of people that think, I can love and baby this dog and help it get what it never has had, not knowing that the dog has no desire for love. It has a desire for stability in its life. It's had no stable social structure, and that's what it needs to be at peace finally. So what they do is bring the dog in the home and allow it, and by loving, oh baby, put it in the bed, let it sleep next to me. They actually tell the dog, here, you can possess me, you can be in a position of leadership, and the dog then, anyone coming in the home other than the person he possesses, he's like, this is mine and you better clear out of here. And the person thinks, how'd this happen? I just loved my dog because of the interpretation problem. That's what happened. Right. Gosh, it's so fascinating to me. It's like a science it is. to us humans trying to figure out how to speak dog language. Yes, that's right. So, <laughs> the nonverbal. That, exactly. So I, I, Patty Spittler, um, and you may or may not know who she is, but she is a, a media personality out here. And she's a friend of mine. And she um, is the host of Pet Pals TV. But she calls me the interpreter. Oh, yes. Because what I do is interpret. I'm basically a language interpreter. I say to people, see how you, this is how your dog interprets what you just did and then i tell them your dog did this and you've misinterpreted this is actually what the dog means by this behavior and once that's clear i say your dog can't come to you you have to go to their culture they can't come to your culture you got to go to theirs so you have to learn what are what is their culture what is their language what is their you have to be immersed in their world they can't get into yours and understand what's going on you can't say to a dog Oh, listen, when I say, baby, I know that sounds submissive, but I'm really not. So please don't take it as that. They have no ability to reason that. So when you say avoid a high-pitched voice, I saw that on your uh, consultation card. And I remember being told that when I first got into adopting and training uh, my dogs. 
we have this tendency, and I will say, you know, it's usually mostly more the moms and the women than the men. But some men, you know, they get into their baby voice. No, I've no, you're it. right. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I have too. I believe me. I'm not. I'm not stereotyping that because I have been in homes where it's exactly reversed. The mom is is no nonsense, and the husband's like, "Hi, come here, baby," and she's like, "Can you not?" I, I definitely right. have seen it that, so that way as it, well. So it's not just the high-pitched voice, but is it that like, it's that different type of voice that, what is it communicating to the dog and why is it best that we not use it? Because how are they interpreting that? Exactly. And that's, and Jacqueline, that's the critical question. And that's the question I wish people would ask. How is my dog interpreting what I'm doing? See, don't, people don't think, they think they already know. The dog knows I'm loving it. So here's the problem with a high-pitched tone. The problem with the high-pitched tone is that it sounds like puppies and it sounds like lower-ranking dogs that whimper. It's in that range. And what whimpering and puppy sounds do for most dogs is initiate dominant signaling, putting paws on, leaning against, barking at. Um, you'll see even adult dogs put their paw and push a puppy down to the ground when it's going, <laughs> and those push them. It's a signal to say, hey, dude, you're making submissive sounds. Remember who I am here in the social relationship. It's like a reminder of rank. And that sound initiates that for them. So you have to be so careful you don't sound like a submissive entity. Now I tell people, you can use baby words. I say to dogs, what are you doing? Oh my goodness. I'll do that. But listen to my tone. And they never get excitable or dominant signal. They'll listen and cock their head and listen to because my tone doesn't sound submissive. It's, it's more of in the lower ranges. And that's not a submissive range for a dog, a, a vocal tone. So that's why I say that. So a lot of like at the TV station, they'll they'll joke with me and say, "Oh, you're really cute, dog." And like, and I and I was like, "No, I'm not saying you gotta do that." Like, "Hey, baby, you look great, little puppy." You can still say, "Oh, that's oh, you're so cute." But if you say, "Oh my god," now you're sounding in the range of puppies and submissive dogs, and it's confusing to them, and they start dominant signaling, leaning on you, a muzzle punching barking, pawing you, all the things they shouldn't be doing. Gotcha. And, you know, I have heard that before, the, the don't use a high-pitched voice, but this is the clearest understanding I've had of why we shouldn't. So I'm I'm such a fan of passing this message along because when people first adopt any dog or get a puppy, the high-pitched voice is go- It's almost like it comes with a package for people. <laughs> it's so fueling it do- new, hey, guys. It really does. It's not. what really does and i you know as human beings we have the capability to adapt to other species and so let's use it they don't so the reason that dogs will socialize with us and when wolves won't is because domestication has rendered them able to include us in their social group right where wolves won't well well wolves can i've heard of isolated cases but it it's dangerous for people that attempt that and 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 they have to do a lot more submissive behavior but when it comes to dogs it's like i tell people a dog that you bring in your home just for your enjoyment what does that help the dog though in the end you will enjoy a dog and if you get your relationship with your dog right you'll enjoy him more that's the thing i think people think I've had people say to me, then why do I have a dog? And I say, why do you? That's a good question to ask. Why do you have a dog? Yes. And then they kind of sit back, but it's a good question to ask ourselves. Why do we have dogs? Is it for their benefit? Hopefully both. But what are they getting out of it? Because they're not getting emotional feelings out of it. That's, so peace and stability is our gift to them. Oh, I love that. And you know, you're right. I, I do, as much as, of course, I promote adoption and we want people to rescue, I always say, please make sure you ask yourself, am I ready for this commitment? Um, yes. Will I put the work in? Do I have time in my daily life? Not just sometimes. And, you know, the financials because of the potential vet bills. And yes, you do want to invest in training because that will set you up for a much longer, peaceful, happy life with your dog than you struggling back and forth or risking having to surrender them at any point. Um, so, and, and speaking of that, Nathan, you know, there are families who don't want to train their dog because maybe they don't see and hear some of the things we're talking about, which are so helpful and, and seem harmless. It's If anything, it's all positive, but they see videos or hear about training methods using gadgets or types of collars and things that 
are sometimes misused and therefore dogs get hurt or people can get hurt. And, you know, of course, the sensational stories make the news. So if people only hear that sometimes, they get turned off. Um, What do you say to people who might be a little hesitant or not know about training methods that don't use gadgets, right? You don't have to have them to train? So it depends on the dog. So my, my rule of thumb is wolves and canines have four levels of correction, starting with the least. So the level one is growling. Level two is snapping without biting. Level three is biting. And level four is takedown. They'll actually take the dog down to the ground. So a rough approximate of that is necessary for us as well. We don't have to do that exact stuff. But I find that the reason that dogs listen to each other and abide by a hierarchy within themselves is because they'll be nipped if they don't, right? That's, that is the way dogs enforce things is nipping. So if I can't find a way to nip a dog, so that, not with my teeth, but just with a quick, I'll either give them a little poke in the chest to get their attention. But if I can't do something like that, that they realize, oh, he'll back this up doesn't hurt them. But if I can't get through to their brain who I am and I'll back it up, they will not listen to me. I have a client right now who has a German Shepherd and it doesn't care about any form of address at all. It's not none. So now the challenge is now what do you do? Because there's nothing a human can do that it respects. It just says, go ahead, poke me. I don't care. Go ahead. So my philosophy is I am willing to administer discipline to a dog only in the way they administer it to each other. I I abide within their, again, stay within their society. That's why I don't do shot collars because they they don't use electricity with each other. And I have seen repeatedly, and I know there are a lot of trainers that just swear by them. Yes, you can get a dog to do what you want with a shot collar, but but what you do is you use fear as a way to get them to do something because electricity scares them. There are a few people I've known that use them and it doesn't necessarily scare the dog, but if you're needing to shock a dog to get it to listen to you, you need to consider whether you should have the dog. Like I, I remember a, um, a, a Doberman owner telling me, he said, yeah, I used to put it all the way up at the highest level of shock. And, oh, and, and that dog would look me right in the eyes, right in the eyes in a challenging way while it was shocking him and just stare me down, he said, while it was happening. So it, at that point, I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> like, that, that's more than I want to hear or, or deal. And he wasn't talking to me about working with his dog. I just thought, it, you know, and a lot of times that happens with unneutered dogs, male dogs. They have so much testosterone going through them. If, if And I'm not, I'm not saying that you... You, you know, everybody has to neuter dog, but I, in my experience as a trainer, it helps immensely if you want a docile, a more docile dog and a dog Absolutely. that's not so frustrated. They're frustrated when those hormones are going through them. I was working with a retriever last month that was young, it was 10 months old. That thing was coming at me and come, I grabbed it around this, I grabbed it and said, hey, to it and gave it kind of a growl. It kept coming back, kept coming back. Finally, after about 10 minutes of that, it started calming down. And I said to them, is this dog neuter? No, not yet. Okay, well, it's basically a teenage boy. I mean, it's got all these (laughs) hormones. And so it's like, give the dog and everybody a chance to come to a relationship, especially a dog like that. I've had unneutered unneutered dogs. I got called because they're humping. The the guy said, it's humping my wife. And when I go to grab him, he bit me in the stomach. So it's like, well, that's nature and that's hormones and that's testosterone. So neutering helps the helps that. So I'm not I don't tell people what to do with their property, but in my experience, just mine as a trainer, it helps immensely with the dog's behavior, especially if you have an indoor dog. They can start marking everywhere if they're not neutered. They can't help it. It's not wrong. People want to get after a dog for going to the bathroom in the house. You it's not I, I tell people that's not a disciplinable offense in their world. <laughs> so don't get mad. If they're marking in the house and they're neutered, they're marking because you're not in charge and they're putting their scent in the house. So so get get in charge. That's the thing. That's when it's us stepping in, learning about how their world works as canines. That's right. right. Because exactly. dogs, they've gotten returned not just to shelters, but returned to the rescue where it was adopted from for peeing in the house. And I've seen that. So um, it's unfortunate because at that point, I really feel like it's the human having to, you know, 
lay down some rules and some consistency in, in the daily training. Obviously, for me, I'm a huge fan of spay and neuter because, you know, in the movement of dog rescue, we're always trying to yes. not overpopulate the, you know, with more homeless dogs. So to prevent. No, that's exactly right. Completely yeah. agree. And, um, and you know, it's funny. When you, when you talk about the discipline, I learned to use the, the prong collars. And when I first saw a prong collar, and this was, uh, gosh, maybe 12 years ago, I didn't know what that thing was. It just looked dangerous. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm never using that. <laughs> and the trainer that showed it to me, it had rounded tips. It was – and it was like yes. – And he said, when yes. you use this properly, you actually never have to use it. It will be on the dog and just it being on the dog, the dog will know like, oh, okay, it's time to like, you know, follow guidelines. And we very slowly introduced it with one of my first dog because she was just – so difficult to wrangle. It was like a yes. horse pulling me down the street. And I didn't know, but it mimics if you you have to place it correctly on the neck, I was told, mm -hmm. so that it mimics mm -hmm. what the mom does when she grabs the puppies from the neck, which is up mm -hmm. high, as a correction, yes. as a quick like, you yes. know, one, two, you know, kind of like that. And I did practice with it, and I will tell you, I know a lot of people don't like them, and I'm not saying you have to use them. I learned how to use it properly. I've never hurt my dogs with one, but it did help me feel like they could listen. And after a while, obviously, she didn't need it anymore, but it was a tool that, when used properly, I could rely on. Well, and it, it, it can simulate a jaw, a jaw grab from another dog. And they'll do that with each other. They'll grab each other by the neck to say, hey, you need to chill out right now, right now. What I find with that as well is that I do use those somewhat in my work. It depends on the dog. So again, because my philosophy is if the dog's not, resp if I can't get the dog res to respond to my nipping with my fingertips, I have to get it to respond to nipping somehow. So sometimes, like I had a client, they had a huge Great Pyrenees. It was, uh, it was about eight months old. And when the husband would leave for work, it would knock the wife down all day and she was afraid of it. It would just jump up and slam her straight down to show dominance. And the husband was done. He was done like I, 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 he's worried about his wife when he leaves and she's crying. And, but then she's crying about getting rid of the dog. Like we don't want to do that. So that dog, I tried poking the dog. It would come back at me. It, it didn't care. But when we, I said in this case, I think this tool is going to mimic a jaw grab that I think should get his attention. And it worked like a charm. What she did is put a prong collar, left a little short leash in the house. And if he got crazy with her and tried to knock her down, one tug, boink, and then he'd stop. And that did it. He realized, oh, okay, she's able to administer correction to me. It wasn't an anger thing. It wasn't coming at the dog. It wasn't injuring the dog. It was letting the dog know you're going to get a quick jaw grab if you if you treat me like this because I'm the one running the household. And he said, oh, okay. He was still, he got it. He was a 70 pound puppy at that point. You should never leave a prong collar on a dog if you do use one. It's only a tool, as you said, as a reminder of you're going to get grabbed by, you're going to get a quick jaw grab if you, if you just disregard me and decide to go and make your own decisions that are not going to be good for you. So it's for the dog's benefit. Right. It's only to actively work with them. I would never leave it on in the house. Um, I would never no, leave it on no, if I'm not yeah. actually with the dog, working with the dog. So yeah, exactly. super important that if people yes. you know, go to training or come across these tools, don't use it by yourself if you haven't been taught to properly use no, it. That was another big thing. That's right. Don't just Start with a prong collar with a dog. That's another thing. You have to graduate to it, right? I learned those things and felt like those are safety tips. Yes, and you have to know how to use it. I completely agree because people will hear that and then get when I say, please don't use it till I can show you. Because just like with dogs, let's say, let's say you activate it, you give it a quick tug, and the dog hasn't done anything. Now you make him nervous, because not because of the tool, but because it's the same as if one dog just bit another one for no reason. They'd be like, what in the world's going... Then they'd be afraid of that animal. So you have to know when and how to utilize one of those. And for it's not, and it's not necessary, I'd say, for most dogs, but it is for some. It, it, right. it definitely some. is necessary for control. So, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
And on that note, I know that, you know, you're in Indianapolis, so a lot of our listeners may not be able to get to you, but you do have these wonderful YouTube videos where you share tips and you talk about some of the things you've shared with us in this episode. Um, Where can our listeners find and follow you to learn more and kind of follow the journey with some of your clients? Yes, so they can go to my Facebook page, which is um, The Indie Dog Whisperer, and I'm also on Instagram as The Indie Dog Whisperer, and IndieDogWhisperer.com is my website. I do offer virtual um, training, but it it really is more, I'd say it's more of an advising kind of thing, because until unless I can right. show people what to do, I do travel though, so I, I'm available to travel if, if, if people are interested in that, I just have to charge travel fees and all that. But yeah, Facebook is The Indie Dog Whisperer, and just as a heads up, I probably am going to be rebranding, but that will I will put all that info in my Facebook as I go to make that transition. Okay, great, great. I love that because I'm a big fan of the YouTube videos too, so we can definitely go to your channel as well. Is it the Indie Dog Whisper YouTube channel? I do not have a YouTube channel. However, um, Wish TV, I do a weekly segment on Wish TV. So you can go to Wish TV 8's uh, web- website and they have all my videos there and they have uploaded them to YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and look up the Indie Dog Whisperer, um, it should pull up all the videos under Wish TV's channel. That's probably how I found you on YouTube, yeah, because I find them so helpful. So anyone out there who wants to check them out, really, really great tips. And if there's an email, that's your preferred form of communication. Would you like to share that with our listeners? Yes, that would be um, IndieDogWhisperer at gmail.com. Perfect. I will have all those live links in the show notes for this episode so anyone can easily click and find Nathan, the Indie Dog Whisperer. Our listeners should also know that I am not getting paid to advocate for any organization or individual on this podcast. I choose to interview guests from organizations that I know are doing the good work for dogs and for people across America. And in this case, the Indie Dog Whisperer has been here to share with us so much valuable information that can set us all up for success. So please consider following him on Instagram, Facebook, and keeping in touch with him should you ever need his services. I'm a big fan of training, so that's why I offer these episodes on this podcast. Thank you, Nathan, for your time. This was lovely. And, you know, to me also, who, even though I'm an experienced dog parent, the reminders, I welcome them every time. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me because my heart is in education. And if we can get the word spread to more and more people about how to view dogs properly, we can give dogs a better life and avoid the surrenders that are happening because of just misinformation and confusion between species. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. So I guess the schooling really starts with us. If we are willing to take on the challenge and want to learn and grow with our canine companions, we are actually acquiring skills that allow us to have clear verbal and nonverbal communication with them. Think about that for a second. It's actually very empowering and peaceful. And even though some of us have had dogs for a long time, or may already communicate well with them, I will tell you that after having this conversation with Nathan, I have definitely picked up on a few things I can improve upon, and some that I can start implementing to have a more consistently stable and fun life with my own dogs. Please check out the Indie Dog Whisperer links in the show notes and share this episode with a friend. Press subscribe on our podcast, and thank you for joining me for this conversation. Until next time, hang on to those leashes. The canine condition. Come, sit, stay.